it's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with some bonkers Ooh. historical true crime for you. I love bonkers. Um, from um, Down Under. Bonkers from Down Under. All right. Bonkers from Down Under. Yes. We are doing this week uh, one of our old timey towny murders. We still haven't figured out what to call it. <laughs> still, still don't have anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess we're taking suggestions. But uh, yeah, uh, this was brought to us by one of our readers who told us about their town. You don't have to give us details about your, your town unless you want to. That's also fine. If you want to submit your hometown and have us dig into its history and find the deep dark underbelly of your hometown. The underbelly. The underbelly, which I found a little bit of an underbelly here. Good. So... Uh, yes, before we get to that, don't forget about the Patreon, that is, uh, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, and over there we tell each other tales, uh, that are a little bit smaller in size, still about a half an hour or so usually, and we talk about stuff that is, uh, a little lesser known, and that you, you won't find on, like, Wikipedia and stuff. And sometimes we make accidental Dr. Seuss rhymes. Yes, yes, that happens, uh, sometimes, you know. It happens. So yes, uh, that's five bucks a month and you can come over and you can dig through our back catalog. There's just tons of great material over there. I'm actually like very proud of, of what we're building uh, with all the, all the content available. Okay, this one comes to us from Alyssa Jane of Euroa, Australia. This is a town that is located in the Shire of Strathbogie. Oh, in Victoria, Australia. Uh, VisitVictoria.com invites you to, quote, descend on Euroa, located at the base of the Strathbogie Ranges in Victoria's high country, and discover a charming heritage town complete with majestic buildings and stunning landscapes. Now, in the Aboriginal dialect, Euroa uh, comes from the word joyful, which uh, was Yera-o. No, rolls so, right off the tongue. Yeah, right? Oh, there's a lot that rolls off the tongue in this. Let me tell you, it's going to be some fun words. I already got to say Strathbogie. Strathbogie. <laughs> Strathbogie. The primary means of uh, making a living in the area, area used to be sheep, but nowadays it's horse studs. Mm. So, yeah. A lot of the local heritage events do still harken back to the sheep times, though. You have Wool Week Festival uh, being the main event. Wool Week Festival. There is a very well-known... Well, I couldn't... Um, to go back to Wool Week Festival, I couldn't find any recent stuff. It might have quieted down a little bit during COVID and stuff, so... Not as popular. Yeah. So, the uh, there is a pretty big crime that we've already covered that makes it hard to find any other crimes in Euroa unless you are like us and know, enjoy digging through old newspapers... And that was, do you remember Ned Kelly? Yes. The uh, the Bush Bandit uh, back in, uh, it was a year and a half, two years, I can't remember. I have no idea. All the time runs together. It does. So, yes, Ned Kelly uh, robbed the National Bank in Euroa in 1878. His gang took over a dozen hostages from the town. Well, that's, they started with a dozen hostages. That was just a baseline. And then when they went out to cut the telegraph wires, they ended up grabbing some more hostages. Uh, they ran first into a hunting party and then a group of railway workers, so they just grabbed all those guys. 
They, Snatch them all up. Right? Exactly. They robbed the bank of 2,260 pounds and also took 14 more hostages from the bank manager's household. At that point, they had 37 hostages. That's pretty impressive. And uh, when you have a built-in uh, audience like that, literally a captive audience, uh, you put on a little show for them, you know? You, you, you get theatrical with it. I hope there was tap dancing. There was trick riding. Hmm. Maybe there was tap dancing, who knows? So the, uh, that was basically Euroa as far as historical true crime is concerned. That's the most linked case and is definitely the biggest. But we've already covered that. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. So we, we, we dug a little deeper into the newspapers. Uh, before we get there, though, I did uh, look at the notable people from around the town. They're pretty much all footballers with one cricketer. And also uh, Eliza Forlong, the woman credited with introducing merino sheep to Southeast Australia. Oh. Yes. I do have to say that one of the footballers is named Paddy McGuinness, which is just a beautiful name. That is a beautiful name. And also, uh, I am I am related to McGuinnesses. Oh. So. Okay. I have a brother and sister that are McGuinnesses. There's a McGuinness in my hometown now that I think about it. That was in my class at school. No relation. Are you sure? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty sure. Well, I haven't seen the dude in like 20 years, so. But uh, there's the Farmer's Arms Hotel Museum in Euroa, and those are pretty much the two characters. Eliza Forlong, who brought the, sh the sheep over, and Ned Kelly, they share space there as the, the town's two, you know, these people have been here and either introduced a main section of our economy or robbed a bank, <laughs> which also is economically related. <laughs> yeah. It's just not a... It's the economic museum. Yes. Loads of people want to go see that. <laughs> so, well, they have, like, you know, Ned Kelly memorabilia and fun stuff like that. So it, it, would, it would attract people who are interested in crime. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, Euroa is not a big place. The population was 3,300, the last census. It's only about two hours from Melbourne. Seems like a nice town. I, I did a little Google Street View. Uh, the last Street View images were taken in 2008. It's so been a minute. It, it could be on fire, or actually, considering the when I looked on the maps, the warnings that popped up, um, it could be flooded. So our, our fingers are real crossed for you guys. <laughs> Just got to say. <laughs> oh, I yeah. guess if both happened at the same time, maybe it worked itself out. That didn't work itself out here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we had a flood and then a fire uh, right afterwards, so. But yes, um, it, do, it does look like the, the main drag looks like the main street in like a really subdued western. Like not anything that's really like cheesy or corny or anything like that. A western that's going for the drama. Uh, so not like the ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yes, exactly. I definitely know what that is. <laughs> Movie, I'm assuming? It's like a series. It's weird. I only saw like bits and pieces of it. I don't know if it's a dramedy or... I'm really not sure what was happening. Some of it's sad. Some of it's funny. Some of it's absurd. I don't know. I never know whether it's a dark comedy or a dramedy. I really... I don't <laughs> I don't understand. I only saw like the first episode and then I was confused because it's actually... It's on Netflix. It's called The, <clears throat> the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And Buster Scruggs dies 
like within the first two episodes, I, from what I understand. I'm like, ha, hmm, okay. <laughs> that would be like naming Game of Thrones the ballad of Ned Stark. <laughs> kind of, kind of, like that. They went one step further with it, though. Yeah, so like the, the one episode I saw, there was literally song and dance. And I'm like, this is a comedy. And then people are dying. And I'm like, this is not a comedy. <laughs> I am fucking confused. <laughs> I haven't really given it a fair shake. I might go back to it, but I just, I don't know. There's a lot of famous people, a lot of cameos. I don't know how I totally missed this, but yeah. I'll, I I'll did take a look too. At that. I, I stumbled upon it and I was, I'm still confused. So maybe I'll go back to it less drunk. Okay. <laughs> so yes, it, it does seem, I guess, kind of like a, I'll get back to you on whether it looks like Ballad of, or doesn't look like Ballad of Buster, Buster Scruggs. Which one are you saying? Ballad of Buster Scruggs. No, does it look like it or not look like it? I don't it? know. I can't remember what Well, we I don't said. know what Buster Scruggs is. Is it a dramedy? Is it a dark comedy? Is it not funny? We don't know. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a dark underbelly back in the day in Euroa. I don't know how it is now, but uh, it, this was one of those stories. The first, I'm going to tell you two different stories because one was a little short. Um, and this is one of those stories that you, you, it's like scratching paint off a wall with your nail, you know, you just have one nail and you're scratching the paint off the wall and you're just, sometimes you're not getting anything. Sometimes you'll get a chip. Sometimes a big fleck will come off. Oh, I get excited when it's like the big ones. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice big, nice big chip. And, um, so it was like that because I would read article after article that said the exact same thing. And then find one article where it was like, whoa, wait. Okay, we're adding a new element in here. <laughs> okay, all right, I wasn't prepared for that. All of a sudden, all the wallpaper is orange. Yes, exactly. So it, we're going to talk about Mary Belair's. Okay. Uh, in 1903, she was at around 26 years old and married when she was charged with stealing five pounds from William M. Vaughn. Now, apparently, Vaughn was the manager of an orchard and he was uh he had bought a bicycle from another local and he owed her seven pounds for it he was kind of paying a little bit on installment so mary belairs was having tea with that said local and mary when vaughn came over and said hey i've got that seven pounds i owe you she said i would like to have that seven pounds brazen she's just she's brazen and William Vaughn said, it's kind of spoken for. I literally walked in here and said, here's your seven pounds and didn't look at you. So <laughs> that's essentially what he said. Then as he went into the front room, he said, quote, I got up from the chair I was sitting on and passing the accused, I felt the five pound note pulled out from my hand. She literally just... Not mine now. Yeah, exactly. Just plucked it right out of his hand. Like I said, brazen. Now that would be about 470 pounds today. I don't think Australia is still on pounds. Maybe they are. I don't... Mm -hmm. Exposing my ignorance. Um, but we're going with what they were using back then. Now, it, she was spending her ill-gotten gains well. Uh, a fruit vendor testified that she bought a pound of peaches with some of it. So, I mean, peach pie. I'm a pie person. What can I say? So I what approve did she of do? peach purchases. Did she just, like, steal it and, like, bolt he tried to look for it, and so did uh, the, the, the woman who he was there to pay. 
they couldn't find it. And she was like, well, shit happens, I guess. Bye. I'm out. <laughs> Losers. So the, uh, the case really didn't blow up. It was five pounds. She was not taken to trial. There was a preliminary hearing that ended in her being let go. Uh, I know I do criticize the newspapers sometimes, but I really have to give credit to them for uh, devoting two whole columns on page two to a preliminary hearing over five pounds that ended in absolutely nothing. Huh. So now the thing slow, is... Slow news day. Slow news day. I, I, I was a journalist for a short time. I, I know how that goes. <laughs> oh. Huh. So... Or she was found guilty a month and a half later. <laughs> it's unclear. The articles clearly state after the preliminary hearing she was let go, but it seems like maybe that was on bail, but bail's not mentioned. One way or the other, there was something going on that the papers didn't want to spell out. They wrote, quote, in consideration of certain mitigating circumstances, the accused was ordered to find a surety of 20 pounds. So that's basically someone that both provides her bail and vouches for her personally. Hmm. Uh, another paper said his honor did not wish to send her to jail for several human reasons and basically released her on her own recognizance and said that if she messed up within the next year, then she would have to come back and be sentenced. So basically keep your nose clean and you'll be good. It, this was one of those cases I, I just kept on scratching my finger on the wall and get nothing She's until pregnant. Finally, well, I thought that she had a baby in her arms at court. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, my guesses were pregnant or some sort of cognitive or mental health issue that was pretty apparent from her behavior. Maybe I couldn't really. It, it was just so glossed over. And so vagued up. And it's like, she was holding a baby. It's not like the baby was like Satan. What? What is that? Why is this? Why are we hiding this? <laughs> so she was pregnant. She had a fucking craving. And this guy walks past. She just takes the five bucks. And she's like, I'm going to get me some peaches. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do love your version of this. Amber's headcanon is always my favorite. <laughs> so yes, um, there was definitely kind of a weirdness with the papers reticence to say woman was holding a child okay <laughs> like we have to call it some several human reasons so anyhow the judge uh did go for mercy with her with that particular ruling another dude sentenced in the same court that day got nine months hard labor for passing a bad check so she did get lucky yeah she did then a few months later boom she's in trouble Big trouble. Quote, in connection with an infant recently given birth by an unmarried girl. So it's a different story this time around. The police were also charging a man named Frederick Kerslake. He was a laborer as an accessory. So what? Getting her pregnant? No, they were more like co-workers. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um... He he took care of her. The aftermath. Oh. Of illegal operations. Oh. Yes. Uh so the infant that had been given birth, uh, one way or the other did not survive. 
the body of the infant was found in Frederick, bleh, Frederick Kerslake's garden. Oh. Mm -hmm. Now, I should specify that when I say garden, I'm pretty sure that Australians... Probably back then, I don't know about now, but probably back then they used the British term for garden, which basically is like your backyard. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a food garden. Just yeah. wanted to specify this with what we have knowledge of is in the ground. So there you go. So um, basically somebody snitched on the girl who was pregnant and then was no longer pregnant and there was no baby to be seen. So there were kind of a couple questions arising there. And uh, this became a murder charge. The Barrier Minor paper said, the case has caused a painful sensation throughout the district and is one of a series all centering around the accused. And I was like, what? Okay, that's hinting at more, but not giving me any details. So let's talk about the, the unmarried woman here. This was Louise Laurie Mitchell. She was a servant and she went to marry for treatment. This was uh, this from the papers. A child was unexpectedly born alive and the accused took it out of the room for a few minutes and on returning stated that the child was dead. The accused then buried the body in her garden, but subsequently its mother got a man named Kerslake to take the body away and Kerslake buried it in his garden. So the child unexpectedly born alive. Um, yeah. I think somebody screwed up what they were doing. Yeah. That illegal operation uh, became, well, what happens when they're illegal? You get a lot of, you know, um, hobbyists, I guess. And I don't like that. Nope, 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 nope. I don't like that. I said it. Um, it seems that for some reason, this case in particular gets people looking under rocks and finding a bunch of nastiness. They're calling it the Euroa Horror. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it seemed to stem from letters that were found at Kerslake's house during a search. He had admitted to disposing of the body in his garden, so they searched his house and they found letters that implicated him and Blair's in, quote, an organized scheme of illegal practices that had been going on for years. So we know the, you know, like back alley abortion is part of this. So, but another case pops up. It's not really explained how it's connected, exactly how, like, point A led to point D. We, we kind of miss B and C. But this is weird because when I was first reading into this, it would list stuff about, um, about the abortion case, and then it would list this case. But I, there was no obvious relation, so I thought they were completely separate. But it wasn't. They found oh. out about this case. So it was from finding out about the abortions. Thomas Batten, an elderly man, has been committed for trial at Euroa for criminally assaulting his stepdaughter, Grace McConnell. The case has arisen out of the investigations into the alleged child murder at Euroa. So that was a big paint chip off the wall, but I still can't see the pattern of the wallpaper underneath. <laughs> they found out that the, the young girl had an illegal abortion. Mm-hmm. And that she was raped by her stepfather, so they're taking him out, too. I guess my main curiosity is what the hell was in those letters? You know, who is writing about this and, and being just so 
So they're being referred to as letters, but they're not necessarily letters. Like it could be I'm writing this to myself so that I know who was here for what, what happened in case I ever need to go forward with this. Receipt, documentation. Yeah. You're right. You might be right about that. Yeah. Good point. Because, I mean, think about it. In a case like that, especially, I think a judge might look the other way as far as the the illegal abortion. Might, might. Depends on the area, really. Depends on the area, depends on the judge, depends on the law at the time. But I, I would say a lot of people in a case where we have a young girl that was raped and it's incest and child abuse and a child becoming pregnant, I think a lot of people would be like, no, I'm, I'm okay with this one. Like... I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, there's more hinted at there even, too. Uh, these allegations extended over the last six or seven years and implicated <sighs> others beside her stepfather. Oh, no. Yeah, it's not not looking too good for this poor girl. Um, oh, who, you'll notice, no. she's named. So uh, Grace and her mother left Euroa for Adelaide. Um, this fact, uh, along with the previous paragraph that I read from about the other implications, was, uh, published in the Adelaide Register. Mm. Uh, they probably left Euroa partly because the press published the poor child's name, only to have the press in Adelaide do the exact same thing. Uh, multiple papers in Adelaide even, it wasn't just like one paper. I don't think you could be a reader of the newspaper without knowing that this had happened. And, um, or maybe they didn't get to Adelaide because there was another newspaper that said that Grace was jailed as a consenting party. Which we know consenting is, um, it's not even doing work there. It's, it's not supposed to be here today. (laughs) She, She was not consenting. Uh, so... Now, back to Mary, she did tell the authorities she had a large practice tending to the needs of local women, and Kerslake basically was her assistant. She denied the murder charge, and um, basically, they did find the body. They had to have help from Kerslake. Uh, He literally told them, it's in this part of my backyard, and they couldn't find it, and so he was like, oh, fine, I'll do it. Give me the shovel for you. I have to do everything. Now, I think earlier I misspoke and I said a couple months. I meant a couple years. This is in 1905 and the theft case was in 1903. I just wanted to clarify that before I say that the the body was very decomposed. A lot of time has passed. Um, Quote, so much so that it is regarded as almost impossible for medical evidence to decide whether the child ever breathed. So they can't even tell that an unnatural death has happened. That definitely throws a wrench in their case. Kerslake tells police Mary's been doing this for a long time. And not only is he her assistant, he also takes care of, like I said, the disposal. Quote, he said he had thrown several bodies into a well in a paddock about half a mile on the Shepherdin Road. But he would also throw animal corpses like rabbits in there too to try to confuse things should it ever be found. Which of course now it has been. And oh, just to by the by, rabbits were a big problem in Euroa back in that day. I don't know how it is now, but 
but I know that there were like weekly notices about the the necessity to go on like rabbit purges. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> kind of nuts. And so uh, at least he was doing a little bit of service for his local No, can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> can't. Nope. Mm-mm. Now they did drain the well. Keep in mind I said this is a well. A well. He threw all this down a well. I hope nobody was drinking from that. Uh, they did find a bunch of remains, but it was to the point where the doctor couldn't even tell if they were human or not. So they he did a have... good job with the confusing. Part. Yeah, yeah, he it did it did work. Unfortunately, um, the charge against Mary got changed to attempting to perform an illegal operation, which I personally feel under the laws and guidelines back then, whether I approve of them or not, doesn't matter. That does seem to be more in line um, than murder, with what the police seem to have on her doesn't seem to be a whole lot of actual evidence and uh, she was found guilty and sentenced to three years imprisonment she was carried out of court in a fit now Kerslake was found guilty of concealment of birth and he got two years the elderly man got seven years for incest so that was the Euroa horrors that it just seemed like Every wow. rock you looked under had more bugs than you could imagine. But everything looked nice and pretty on the outside. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like Nutting Day, while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love Nutting Day. <laughs> nutting Day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. So, okay, let's talk about the 1898 Bush murder. Okay. Now, this is a little ways from Euroa. You cheated. I did not cheat. You stretched it. I struggled, and then I decided to give myself grace. (laughs) I figured it'd be like, okay, I'm from Warren, It'd be like if somebody told a story about a murder in Jamestown. I was in Jamestown enough growing up that I would relate to that. It would feel familiar to me as a place. So I hope... It's where the mall is. Well, yeah, that was a much better mall than ours. (laughs) So... I don't know why I knew that. This is Strathmerton. I've probably mentioned going to the Jamestown Mall at some point in time. Must have stuck. Uh, So, yes. um, This was in Strathmerton. Uh, around Alupna Creek on a Tuesday in late September. Now, the creek was near a sawmill. 
and two uh, tree fellers. I love it. Wonderful word because you really go in a different direction at first than, than the truth. The truth of this, these are men who fell trees, but I think they're tree fellers. <laughs> love it. Maybe there's tree fellers. <laughs> Instead of two, I don't know. All right, you're fired. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been my last show. We're done now. <laughs> All right, so they're looking for logs in the bush, and they spotted something in the creek, like a sack. I love the conversation that the newspaper recreates between the tree fellers. That looks as though someone had been drowning a dog. And then the reply, perhaps there's a child in it. We'll have a look before we go home this evening. It's oddly proper. We'll have a look before we go home this evening, in case it is a child. Also, yes, do you, do you normally procrastinate on the possibility that there's a, a child in a sack in the river? Like, Well, at this point, it might be too late. Pretty, pretty low on your priority list, I guess. So what it was was two corn sacks that had been sewn together. The man cut some of the stitches and discovered that there was a dead body in the sacks. It was not that of a child or a dog. It was a man. And along with the body was the lid of a camp oven, which must have been heavy enough and was meant to weigh down the contents of the sack, but not successful, obviously. So the body was taken to Strathmerton Police Station. No locals recognized him except for one. He said he'd seen the victim, but they'd never actually spoken to each other, just, you know, passers-by, essentially. Oh, he looks familiar. I think I saw him at the general store last week sometime. <laughs> so the man was described as 45-ish, 5'3", medium build, very broad shoulders, sandy hair with a bald spot on top, and with a full red beard. Notable was that he had uh, a large tattoo on his right upper arm. It was a crucifix with the letters I-N-R-I, which, Inri, is... Uh, Usus Nazarenus Rex Uzorium, uh, an inscription placed over Christ's head during the crucifixion. It means Jesus is the king of Jews. Uh, though, okay, so I had to look that up, obviously, because um, I didn't know what it meant. When you look that up, you find a funny little story that I just want to relate to you. <laughs> so there was a couple who, this is modern day, like in the past, I don't know, five-ish years, a couple who smoked weed at a national park in New England and got busted. Their argument was that uh, the phrase Inri was prophetic and it really meant in R.I. As in Rhode Island. And they chose that national park because it was donated by the Hahn family. And Hahn is another word for hemp. And then there was even more on top of that <laughs> of their attempt to argue that smoking weed in that particular part was part of their religious practice. I, I like where they're going. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. That just cracked me up. So going back to this man who's been found in a sack in the river, that was a, that was a transition. <laughs> it was not a graceful one, but it was a transition. Uh, so the post-mortem examination found that the cause of death was a laceration of the brain. There were two big fractures on either side of the skull, probably caused by a pointed instrument like a pick and a jagged stab in the throat. They really wanted him dead. They really did. Now the pick, 
there was some force behind that. Uh, quote, the point of the implement entered the base of the skull behind the left ear, coming out near the eye, lacerating the brain and creating terrible radiating fractures. My head hurts and I don't know why. Ouch. Yeah, that just reading that gave me a headache. So he'd also been uh, stabbed in the throat with what they called a pig sticker. Hmm. Uh, that they found in the ashes of a campfire near the creek. There was, uh, it's either a Y-shaped wound on the throat or multiple wounds. It was clear that he had, uh, the murderer had stabbed the victim not only repeatedly, but also turned the knife. So, yes, wanted him dead is, is actually maybe an understatement. We were very, very angry. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the cuts on the left hand of the victim indicated a struggle. Defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. And then the, the police kind of generated a theory based on that. The theory of, de- of the detectives is that the men quarreled and that the murderer stabbed the other man in the neck. The victim grasped the knife with his left hand, receiving the gash near the thumb, and then fell forward in an exhausted condition. As he fell, the murderer seized another weapon and then gave him his quietus with the wound in the skull. Quietus. It's your word of the day. <laughs> Yep. Well, he's going to be quiet for a long time and never tell anyone about this argument. Yeah, yep. So, I mentioned the local who had seen the victim. The victim was not alone. So, the victim had been seen with another dude who was small, thin, wiry. He had a brown mustache, piercing dark eyes, and what the newspapers call... I emphasize the newspapers call, not me... Uh, a pair of malformed legs. Oh. And then, uh, as I was working on this case, I had an argument with myself over whether or not I should call the murder victim until we actually know his name, Beardy. Uh, and the other guy, Slim. And I still haven't resolved that argument. <laughs> All right, I like it. Let's do it. Beardy and Slim. <laughs> it feels inappropriate, but uh, sometimes we do that. So, um, Beardy is affectionate. So the two of them had been in a buggy uh, doing some rabbit trapping. What do you know? Rabbits are a whole thing. Rabbits are a whole thing. Uh, although reports on what Slim sold later indicated that they caught more opossums than rabbits. Um, it did look, at least just from this one person who didn't even interact with the two men, it did look like Slim was the boss of Beardy. So the one man who had seen these guys together said it was two days before the body was found that he saw them. The men had obviously just broken camp. They were heading uh, from Nathalia to Strathmerton. Uh, the thin man said he wanted to go to Yarrawonga. That's fun. <laughs> That's going to be my new exclamation. Yarrawonga! <laughs> Yarrawonga! I love that. It's Oh, it's a wonderful word. It's It just is a delight to say. So... The thin man wanted to go to Yarrawonga. His buddy wanted to stick closer to the river for trapping. Seemed to be a bit of a disagreement. Uh, As the witness watched, Slim paced up and down, quote, as if laboring under a great mental stress. The witness also noted that the slim man seemed to be distinctly knock-kneed. Another man had heard several shrieks coming from around where the body was found, around about the time that they estimated the murder had happened. Now, it feels like the timing has to be off on that somehow, because it was two weeks 
before the murder that a constable got a tip from Yarawea. Yarawea. I think it's Yarawea. I did look that one up. <laughs> uh, that a man had disposed of a horse, buggy, and harness at a super low price, which raised some suspicions as to how he had obtained them. Did they fall off the truck, even though one of them is a buggy, which... Anyhow, so... But I, yeah, I... The timing confused me, and I still haven't gotten a handle on it, because it seems like that horse and buggy would have been sold after. Yeah. So I don't know, but... And so the constable went to Yarawea and talked to the dude who bought the horse, uh, James Long. He said he bought it from a man who called himself Alfred Archer. The most description he could give of this man was that Archer was pretty knock-kneed. Well, there's that. There's that. So he had paid three pounds and 12 shillings for the horse, while another dude bought the buggy and the harness for only $30. Uh, in today's, that would be about 600 for the horse and 5000 for the buggy and harness. So the constable, whose name was Teague, looked into it and he found... No record um, that there had been any turnouts stolen. I do love that phrase, or that word rather. A turnout, I think, being basically like the getup you use to turn out <laughs> of your driveway or whatever. Um, but I've always enjoyed it. It, it, feels, it feels very quaint. I like it. So he said, you know, there's not been any stolen. So if this was stolen from somebody, they weren't able to report it for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So the dude, Archer, had told his customers that he was selling the stuff to that he wanted to go shearing and needed money to get him to a shearing shed. You know, go shearing sheep. Okay, that was what I was thinking, and I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, the shed where you shear sheep? Say that ten times yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I want to be able to say the rest of the words on this, uh, in this document. Can I put you with you again? Yeah, we're not used to me not sitting with my legs up. <laughs> I always sit with my legs up, but I'm trying to have better posture now. So now that I think about it, I should sit up straight. Um, so yeah, Teague basically was like, he didn't have anything else. So he's like, well, it's not against the law to be a shitty businessman. But then when the body was found, the owner of the sawmill nearby um, told Teague that a man had trespassed on his land and then driven towards Yarrowia. And that clicked with him because the, the cheap turnout had been sold that same day. So he's thinking, okay, that's a little bit more solid. And then Teague proceeded to, quote, send out to all the selectors and timber getters in the district, asking for any information related to the case. One of them said, well, uh, before the body was found, I, I was on the road between where the murder scene is and Yarrowia, and I found part of a camp oven. So, part, though. Another, another piece clicks into place here, and Teague heard that click. Investigators uh, were summoned from other towns, and they started trying to connect these sightings of this man. They put out a warrant for the man named Archer, and it has a very special description of him. Knock-kneed. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it goes... It goes deeper with the description. Oh, uh, no. He has a most peculiar and remarkable walk and is knock-kneed. He drags one leg behind him and throws both legs about while walking as if they do not belong to him. 
There were other newspapers that actually made fun of that exact phrasing later on. They were like, when <laughs> it doesn't, he doesn't look like that. So it was just, mm. now there's a $25 pound uh, something uh, reward offered for information that leads to his arrest. Uh, what they could kind of figure out was, you know, from talking to people, he was thought to have come over about 12 to 18 months prior as a cook on board the ship, the Narcissus. And he settled briefly in Melbourne, then kind of vanished into the bush country, came back to the city briefly, vanished again. That seemed to be just his, his way, what he did. And then they've managed to finally get an identification for the murdered man, William Matthews. He was a local bloke, said to be industrious and hardworking, known in the Karumba district, another fun one, as Billy, and he worked with farmers a lot. Just a, a decent fellow. I held back, I held back. Decent fellow. <laughs> a decent fellow. So, and then just a few days after all this extensive information on Alfred Archer was published, he was arrested at a hotel in North Melbourne. He had just that day gotten some work at the hotel washing buggies. And then he was arrested and also drunk. Oh, on oh. his first day of work. Yeah, yeah. Well, you want to make a good impression. That's one hell of a way to make an impression. Yes. So, of course, when questioned, he's all denials. He said that two other men had approached himself and Mr. Matthews, as they were working, and Matthews seemed to know these guys. So Matthews went off with them and said, hey, I'll be back soon, but then never came back. Archer said he was pretty sure that Matthews had just gone on a spree at a local hotel. He's just off getting drunk. Ignore the fact that I also am drunk right now. <laughs> and uh, he had heard the next night he kind of thought differently because he heard what sounded like Matthews calling his name from down by the creek. He said he went to the creek, couldn't find Matthews, but then when he returned to camp, the oven lid was missing. He reported that he had sold the buggy and the horse for cheap because he just needed money for traveling. And uh, you also need a horse and buggy for traveling, though? I know, it doesn't completely line up. Um, I guess trains? I don't know how um, well they could get you off across Australia in that day. Um, so, but this lovely tidbit uh, that he later said, uh, just really, I like it. Uh, I remember having made some statement after my arrest, but I was drunk at the time and did not know what I was saying. So there you go. Now, he himself had several tattoos, which I was just amused because there's like an anchor, there's the letters AA, so he probably got his own initials tattooed on him. He loves himself very much. It's, it's fitting that he came over on the Narcissus, I'm just saying. Yes. Uh, as well as a lover's knot and a dancing girl tattoo. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, he was... So when he masturbates, he can imagine a woman. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, he was a little... Um, Shaky in court. He nearly fainted. And the newspapers are really hyping this, and, and they're really getting into the drama. This is uh, on his departure from one of his initial court dates. Quote, and I'm going to inject as much drama into this as I can, so get ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. 
The cab drove off with 300 people dashing behind it until, reaching the main street, the driver urged his horse, and the last persevering sensation hunter dropped breathless away. <laughs> wow. The whole article. I swear the first three paragraphs were descriptions of the crowd pressing up outside the court. You don't even get into the courtroom until multiple paragraphs in. Wow. Somebody was really, really trying their best to get a, a job as, as like more than an intern. Yeah, right? So the trial is pretty brief. The, basically, the defense is everything that the prosecution has is circumstantial. Um, it might not even really be Matthew's body. It might be somebody else entirely. We don't have any real verification. They made the point that there were plenty of people around who knew Matthews, but they hadn't been called when the coroner was verifying his identification. But of course, if Matthews was alive, couldn't he possibly, at any moment, walk through that door? No. Not happening. <laughs> they were trying, though. Yeah, I mean, he didn't do that much. That that's a that's a Christie uh, Christie bonus. <laughs> you get bonus. Christie bonus. You know, I like to bring a little bit of the performance arts into it. <laughs> so, Archer took the stand and told his story. He came from South Shields, England. He had come to Australia about a year before. Like they said, their information was right. He had been there a few times prior. He'd done a lot of traveling before that, actually. Italy, Germany, he worked on some ships. He'd been in the Marines. So he met Matthews, who offered him an even split if they went possuming together. Then, after a fortnight, he a few people approached, and we get those two men that come out of nowhere... Um, so it's just about the same story he told, uh, which I'm, I'm glad that was when the papers got even more blurry. Oh, yes. That's, that's my favorite reading 1800s blurry ass newspapers that you can't zoom in on. I know, right? Oh, yes. So, uh, a big point they make is that when Matthews disappeared, Archer didn't really make any real effort to find him. He said he traipsed down to the creek and looked around, and then he was like, well, he's not here. I guess I got to go sell his horse and buggy. <laughs> and, you know, if your buddy disappears, you do more than that, I would say. If, if it's your friend, yes. Even an acquaintance that you've just spent the past two weeks working with. Even if you don't like him, if somebody disappears, you maybe do something. Literally anything. Maybe not. That's a that's an amber thing. <laughs> no, like I'm just saying I've had coworkers that either quit or were let go and I did not realize their absence for a good year. Well, this is a little bit of a different kind of coworker situation just because they're also traveling together, camping together. So you have that aspect where they're around each other like 24 hours, which all the more reason that he was like this guy is so annoying. <laughs> And the guy is like, I'll be back, or maybe I won't, okay, bye, and leaves. And the guy's like, oh, thank fuck. Oh, I'm not going to report his ass missing either, especially if he was driving me nuts. I'm just going to drive away. Yeah, exactly. In his buggy with his possums that he caught. I, he left. He said he may or may not be back. I'm going to go with may not. <laughs> Goodbye, sir. Like, so, yeah. Well, there, there definitely is kind of a logic problem, especially if you're out in the bush, you know? 
The, it's in Australia. There's a logic problem, yes. I can see the great the gratefulness that he had left, and that's pretty shady to sell his horse and buggy. But I mean that's this is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from when a killer like goes to the extreme and tries to jump into the search for a missing person that they murdered. He's like, yeah, I knew that guy. He left. He's fine. I'm sure somewhere <laughs> drunk, whatever. So the defense is just that, well, when Matthews disappeared, Archer was like, well, I've acquired some new property. I'm going to hop on over and uh, sell it in another town and then skedaddle. The jury deliberated for 45 minutes, two hours. Uh, he was found guilty and sentenced to death by Justice Hood, which is a little too on the nose. The Hood, Hangman's Hood, and also the hood they put over you. Everybody on that stage is hooded, I swear to God. Stage, it's a gallows. It's not a stage, Christy. It's not a gallows. <laughs> Everyone's wearing a hood. It is a performance of sorts. But the other ones have eyes in, in their hoods. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, so, after being sentenced to death, uh, Archer was returned to his cell where he had what they called a violent fit. Quote, and fought and hit those in charge of him and raved like a maniac. There was also some maniacal laughter and apparently some biting. I feel like that would be the opportunity to get him to confess, though, is when he's lost his mind. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, cause he was, it took several constables to hold him down. And the way the paper describes it, it seems like the public was just, like, right there. Like, could see him. Like, okay, okay, so here it is. People surged so close in that the police eventually cleared the yard after Archer had remained for some time with his head on some bags of chaff, which were placed under him. He seized one of those in his teeth, shook it like a terrier shaking a rat. He then knocked his head on the ground and raved in Italian and German for a long time. Wow. So for some reason, the general public is just, like, hanging out around the jail and can see him. Now, it doesn't seem like this would be, you know, a cause celeb that people rush to, but apparently, kind of a little bit, um, someone told the premier uh, that deputation, a deputation of 4,000 people had been arranged to petition the governor for Archer's reprieve on the basis that Matthews was still alive. I don't know if those 4,000 people existed in reality or in somebody's head. I was going to say probably not. And, like, what is your argument? The argument is that Matthews is still alive. Has anyone seen him? Nope. from him? Nope. <laughs> yep. I know. Um, so the premier contacted the Reverend R. Elliot, who was Archer's spiritual advisor in the prison after his death sentence. And was pretty much spending every waking moment with him. Even taking meals together. Uh, quote, the premier explained the facts and concluded by asking if Mr. Elliot could, without departing from his obligation as spiritual advisor of the condemned man, make any statement which would support the government in the reprieve effort. Mr. Elliot spoke to Archer and got consent. So the Reverend Elliot told the government that its position was unassailable. Basically, gives him the go-ahead. Archer had confessed to him, although at the moment, just for the moment, while Archer was still alive, the Reverend left it at that. 
So the execution came around on November 22nd, 1898. Archer drank a pint of tea, but skipped breakfast. It said he also drank a little stimulant. From my perusing around the, the newspapers from that period of time, it seemed like a stimulant could be a tonic that's mostly gin. <laughs> okay, that works. So he had I some... was thinking coffee right away. I know. Well, like... I mean, that's where we go to with stimulants. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, he said to the prison doctor the night before the execution, I am not a coward. I have changed now, and if I fail tomorrow, it will not be because I am afraid, but because human nature cannot stand the strain. He left three letters, one for his mother back in England, one for an old shipmate, and one for the Reverend Elliot. At the gallows, he was said to be calm and composed, and then he was hanged. The prison doctor called the execution, quote, a perfect one. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's a way to describe killing someone. Okay. I mean, I guess you have the perfect murder. You can have the perfect hanging. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially when you don't have the perfect murder. Mm -hmm. So uh, death was said to be instantaneous. A little bit less calm and composed was the Reverend Elliot. Um, he had gotten so close to, Elliot, or to Archer, he collapsed after the hanging and had to be taken to the jail hospital. He said he'd grown fond of Archer and would have liked to see the sentence commuted. Very um, compassionate man, maybe. I would say to a fault, but he was honest about the fact that Archer had confessed. So, no, I won't fault him for it at all. No. So, and Archer had confessed. After a little bit of time had passed, like a week, uh, the Reverend opened up and uh, with a little bit of a hint of self-defense that he was doing this not because he wanted to, but because he had to defend himself. I was at liberty to state what I did in the interests of justice, for Archer requested me to admit his guilt if I deemed it desirable, and to make use of his confession, should I wish, wish, as a deterrent to others who... Witch! <laughs> witch! Burn the witch! No. As a deterrent to others, uh, to others who might be on the path of wrongdoing. So, um, there's one wonderfully both... Australian and British bit that it comes out when, when Elliot finally spills the truth of what Archer told him. Archer dated his downfall to the Melbourne Cup the previous year. Apparently something happened that day that turned his life around not in a good way. And so finally, after Elliot's done being cagey, he, uh, he gives us the final testament of this man. Since he went to the trouble of telling us what happened, let's hear it from his perspective. The following is the confession made by Alfred Archer, who was executed at Melbourne on Monday. When returning to my ship, the Narcissus, on Cup Day 12 months ago, I was accosted by a respectably dressed woman who invited me to have a drink. Being short of money, I saw an opportunity of getting a drink and went with her. I abandoned my vessel and lived with this woman, spending most of my time drinking. Being short of funds, I sought work and stole a diamond ring from a place where I was working and, fearing arrest, decided to go into the country. I went to Shepperton and thence to Corumba, where Mrs. Mr. Stidwell gave me work. I then met Matthews, who asked me to join him in possuming. We made toward Lupna and were not successful. On Tuesday, Matthews said, we had better separate. It won't pay. 
all my past privations and a strong desire to be with Matthews took hold upon me. And I said to myself, by God, we shall separate, but not in the way you mean. I then calculated what I would get in money and how much the cart and horse would bring. I said, I apologize for any difficulties in reading this. Very blurry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like. Oh, no, I know. We'll, we'll circle back. We'll yeah. circle back to that. Exactly I, I'm absorbing. what you're thinking. Yeah. So um, I then calculated what I would get in money and how much the cart and horse would bring. I sat brooding upon this until night came. Matthews undressed and rolled himself in his rug on the ground. I also laid down and tried to get to sleep, but could not. I then got up and sat rocking myself, saying, I will, I will, by God, I will. At last, I jumped up, seized the tomahawk, and dealt him a blow on the head, saying, we will separate. I then dragged him outside the tent. Matthews got up on his knees, and I then gave him a second blow with the tomahawk. As he fell over, I threw away the tomahawk and took up the knife and drove it through his throat. I cannot account for the cut on his hand, but I know that he had his hand up when I hit him the second time. I stepped back and found myself covered with blood. I went back to the body and I shook it. I cried out, Jack, Jack, speak. And I realized then that I had murdered him. I raced backwards and forwards calling, Jack, Jack, what shall I do? I saw that I must get rid of the body. I got some sacking ready, squeezed the body into it, bent him up, put the oven lid on him, and sewed it all up into a parcel. I did not even search for the money at the time. I was too terrified. I harnessed the horse and lifted the body into the oars and drove to Alupna Creek and tipped the body into it. God, this is hard to read. It must have been two o'clock in the morning. I burnt the bloodstained clothes, threw the knife in the fire, and then he goes and says, from here, my movements are known. My mind had been filled with horror since the deed was done. And my sentence is a just one. I thought the body would not be found until at least Christmas, and then I would be away. But then, passing along Bork Street, I saw a placard announcing a murder at Strathmerton. My very heart stopped beating. I decided to wait. I was dumbfounded by the statement at the trial and said, this, then, this is the reward for my actions. Betrayed by the woman I loved, condemned by man, and abandoned by God. So, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The comments, the, the strong desire not to be separated from Matthews is definitely, um, I, I think something's bubbling under the surface there. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, Seems like maybe we caught feelings. You know, our little possuming adventure turned into a little brokeback situation. Yeah, and then Matthews is like, okay, you need to go now. We're done. But I don't want to be done. Yeah. I'll never be done. Did not seem like he wanted to be done. We can separate, but not in the way you mean. Yeah, I know. That's freaking ominous. So, yeah, those, um, and then blaming it on a woman all at the end. You gotta love it. He never even told us how the woman betrayed him, so he doesn't have any supporting evidence for that claim. I choose to dismiss it. I don't even think there was a woman. I think Matthews was the woman. There was a woman that he was involved with. I believe she was called Mrs. Grove. Probably didn't have a first name because we're born without them. 
And um, <laughs> then he got into a fight with her brother. And then her brother, I think, was the one who turned him into the police. That was all a little bit hazy in the paper, so I didn't include it because it seemed very much like they... Whoever wrote that article got it from, like, a friend of a friend who knows a guy who knows the brother. So. Yeah. So, Fair. yes. Those are uh, my, uh, my Euroa tales. My show notes are titled, Not Myoa, Euroa. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a couple of... I, I felt bad not getting one big case, you know? And so I, I, I just grabbed a couple little bits from the newspapers, from the actual Euroa newspapers from back in the day. Um, so you can see what people were reading about over their morning coffee. So just a few here. Uh, or morning gin, perhaps. Or your morning, whatever stimulant you choose. Mr. Bromley met with a painful accident last night. He was on his way home when he slipped on a piece of orange peel and falling heavily fractured both ankle bones of the left leg. Wow. He fell on an orange peel. It's this close to a banana. Well, I mean... They are the land down under, so they switch fruits. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, then we have an advertisement. I just love the name of this product. It's Dr. Williams Pink Pills for Pale People. Pink Pills for Pale People. I think we might have just plosived the microphone. <laughs> so it's a positive, not a negative remedy. They cure not by purging the system, but by enriching and purifying the blood and fortifying the nerves, strengthening the spine and muscles. And they're very, um, a fully half of this ad is dedicated to making sure that people get real, genuine Dr. Williams pink pills for pale people. And accept no imitators. Okay, so this is a, a fun little agricultural adventure. An extraordinary collection was found in the stomach of a cow killed recently by Mr. Sherwell of Benalla, amongst the articles found being an Imitation spade guinea, dated 1791, iron nails, hairpins, and a small portion of the framework of an umbrella. The cow was purchased by Mr. Sherwell, whose paddocks uh, she had been running, but where she picked up the article's name is a mystery. Cow just going out and chowing down. On umbrellas. And then here, uh, finally, last one is a, another reverend here from the area who uh, just can't understand why people aren't in church. At Holy Trinity Church, Benalla, on Sunday morning, the Reverend J.P. Edwards said he could not understand why people stayed away from church on a beautiful, fine morning like that. If they went along the riverbanks, he had no doubt they would find them aligned with people fishing. He was beginning to think it might cause a separation between the pastor and the people of the parish. It was very disheartening, and unless things altered... He would have to do something that would bring about the severance of his connection with that parish. So he's saying, if you don't stop fishing on Sunday, I'm going to head out and you're going to miss me. Except I don't think anyone's going to miss him. No, they'll just continue fishing. They'll be, if, if they're already choosing to go fishing over church, I'm pretty sure they're okay with you leaving. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So um, we do have a patron shout out. Welcome to the Patreon. I'm like tossing my hair, getting ready for my She really is. My solo she, hair. She's like getting her Beyonce on. Yeah. She's ready. <laughs> Marie Zimmerman. Hi, Marie. Hi, Marie. And you can join Marie and all of our lovely patrons at patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the 
show notes. Yep. It would be cute when we do that, except sometimes we can't tell the difference between our voices. So <laughs> occasionally when we say things together, very oh, close together, yeah. I mean, it's not like we're not getting the character of our voice. I'm always like, who said that? When we say things in unison, it's creepy as hell. Well, we can be pretty creepy, and we are slowly turning into the same person. There is also that, yes. Get out of my head! (laughs) You're in my head! So, all right, from us uh, very creepy weird twinsies, (laughs) we're like the grown-up little twin girls from The Shining uh, who have a podcast. (laughs) I know what we're going to be for Halloween next year. Oh my god, I love it! Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, yes. High five. Yes. (laughs) All right. Um, we will see you later, and bye. Bye. Sources. Sources, yes. I got to the S word eventually. It took me a second. <laughs> uh, my sources were the Euroa Advertiser, Northeastern Ensign, Albury, Banner, and Wodonga Express. Wodonga! Wodonga forever! <laughs> the Perth Daily News, the Adelaide Register, the Argus, the Waragal Guardian, the West Australian, the Launceston Examiner, those were all from Trove, uh, Australia's newspaper database, and uh, from over here in the States, just that little bit about the uh, in Rhode Island weed uh, was from the Washington Post. In Rhode Island. In Rhode Island. Get out of my head. <laughs> You're in my head. So, all right. Um, that is us, uh, old timey crummy twinsies. Uh, <laughs> I love my angry voice. <laughs> it always shows up on the, uh, the thingy there, the wave. And, uh, yeah, she, she loves seeing how it, it's twice as big, three times as big even as our, our regular voices. You want to know it's even bigger than that? Uh-huh. My God. <laughs> oh my God. Well, save that for the end. Did you? Yep. There it is. She's just really amused. Um, <laughs> It's I'm the little things. I'm probably going to just tag this <laughs> on to the end. So uh...